Hey, welcome to the Parallax Podcast. I'm Liz Brown. In this episode, I'm speaking with Omar Woodard, the Executive Director of Greenlight Fund Philadelphia, a nonprofit venture capital firm that works at the intersection of community need and social innovation. Greenlight Fund Philadelphia invests in organizations working to take on some of the most pressing challenges facing low-income families in the city. They help to fund initiatives like the Center for Employment Opportunities, a program that provides people returning from prison immediate paid employment, skills training, and ongoing career support. Compass Working Capital, a nonprofit financial services organization that supports families with low incomes to build assets and financial capabilities. And Parent Child Plus, an evidence-based early literacy, parental engagement, and school readiness model committed to closing the achievement gap by providing families with the knowledge, skills, and materials they need to prepare their children for success in pre-kindergarten and beyond. Prior to his work at Greenlight, Omar was a principal at Venture Philanthropy Partners, a philanthropic investment firm where he co-managed a $20 million portfolio to achieve social impact across education, youth development, and health. Today, he teaches at Temple University's Fox School of Business and serves as a board member for the Philanthropy Network of Greater Philadelphia, Global Philadelphia Association, Maternity Care Coalition, and Gerard College Foundation. Omar and I caught up to discuss more about his work at Greenlight Philadelphia and the organization's approach to taking on some of the most complex issues that the city has to face. grew up in North Philly and spent your career in the nonprofit and social impact world, much of it here in the city that you were raised in. What motivated your interest in philanthropy and the work that you do? Um, you know, it, it really started with, um, with my education. I went to a school called Girard College uh, in North Philadelphia. And Girard College is nearly 170 years old, but it was created out of one of the greatest acts of American philanthropy um, in its time. The person, Stephen Girard, had actually lent the U.S. government money to fight the war in 1812. That's how wealthy he was. Um, and his uh, one of his last acts before he passed um, was to create a school for poor, orphan, white boys. And until 1968, that's all who ever attended until the Supreme Court desegregated Girard College. And uh, 22 years later, I had the opportunity to join as a, as a first grader and graduated from there. And so um, you know, spending 11 and a half years in a school founded by a great act of philanthropy, culturally, you tend to learn about the founder, the, the philanthropist. You learn about why he wanted to start a school in the first place. And, you know, it's something that maybe subconsciously stuck with me for a long time. If you had told me 20 years ago that I'd be working in philanthropy, running a venture philanthropy organization, I didn't know that philanthropy was a career. I thought it was something that wealthy people did. Um, and so what what brought me there was really the story and the experience of benefiting my entire life from someone who lived 200 years ago, but whose wealth continued on to help educate me, uh, which led me to receive 90% uh, scholarships to go to college. It got me a graduate fellowship, right? Philanthropy really has been the fundamental reason for why I've been able to achieve, I believe. And so it makes sense for me now to be a, a philanthropic leader in the city I grew up in trying to solve some of the challenges that my family grew up facing and other families like mine. And it helps me wake up every morning and feel good about the work I do because I can see the tangible impacts on families, again, that look a, look a lot like mine and reminds me of, of how much work is still remains to be done. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of work to be done. There's always some kind of work that needs to be done. And for people who don't know, could you explain the term venture philanthropy? Yeah, it, it, has, it has a history to it. 
I would I would take a step back by <clears throat> generally framing it as the difference between charity and philanthropy. Charity has generally been I'm successful, I've done well, and I'd like to give back. And the extent of that give back is a one-time or, or a few-time donation to organizations that are meaningful to that person. Philanthropy generally is the more organized, professionalized, institutionalized approach to doing charity in a more thoughtful way. Venture philanthropy takes the best practices of private equity and venture capital and introduces them into the philanthropic space. What that means is really three things. One is multi-year donations, so multi-year contributions in an unrestricted manner. That's something that's very different from traditional philanthropy. Generally, just traditional philanthropy is one year, restricted money, focused on a program. Venture philanthropy generally is multi-year investments that are unrestricted to allow the management team of the organization really the most flexible opportunity to do what they need to do. The second thing about venture philanthropy is generally that uh, there is no endowment. Uh, most traditional foundations have large endowments that their benefactors have provided, which they spend down 5%, invest the remainder. In venture philanthropy, every grant dollar that's given away is raised from other individuals, right? Very similar to a venture capital fund, which raised from individual institutional investors. Those investors remain a part of that process, right? So it's not just giving a dollar and saying, I hope something good happens. It's being engaged in the process of understanding what needs are, supporting management teams as they come along, identifying opportunities to remove barriers. And so it's really about long-term partnership, right? It's about multi-year engagement on funding and long-term partnership around that. The last thing I would say is that there's a real focus on, on leadership and governance, that you don't sell a great product without having a strong team behind it. That is as true in the private sector as it is in the nonprofit sector. And so venture philanthropy really does support social entrepreneurs, focuses on, on creating strong leaders and strong management teams. That's not something you necessarily hear a lot from in traditional philanthropy. It's, it's gaining steam. But venture philanthropy is really focused on improving the quality of leadership uh, and building the capacity of leadership to provide better, more equitable products and services to vulnerable populations. So I would say venture philanthropy really is defined in those three ways. And there's lots of other things. The last thing I would add is venture philanthropy generally um, receives money from individuals who are in venture capital and private equity. And that's because they see value being created from the work they do every day, that that can actually be translated into making social impacts on the ground and reducing poverty and improving education and improving access to healthcare, using the models and, and tools and approaches they use every day. And so it makes a lot of sense that they would continue, as well as VC and private equity has done in the past years, to divert some of their profits to making um, venture capital investments for social sectors. That's kind of how I would explain what they So what is Greenlight Fund's structure and approach? Our structure, we have a single 501c3. Um, our organization was founded 15 years ago in Boston. And the idea from our founder was, look, I, he's a venture, capital, a venture capitalist, and he invests in a ton of great companies. And when he started supporting nonprofits, he was trying to figure out why is it that cities that have a need for an issue, that have a need for a, a model or a solution, it, they can't find it very fast. There's no matchmaking effort or if the city of Philadelphia has a real need to reduce chronic absenteeism and it doesn't exist in the city now, how does it find it? 
in where other cities have figured that out. And so really what Greenlight was is a matchmaking service between cities that have needs and models that have proven uh, their evidence of impact. And so that's what we've been doing in Philadelphia for the last seven years. Over the last seven years, we've made six investments, uh, five investments, soon to be six, um, in organizations and models um, that we think are really transforming systems and, and transforming lives in the city. Our approach is very simple. We spend a good chunk of our time not seeing ourselves as grantors or, or as a foundation. Uh, we see ourselves as a, as a tool for, for residents who live in high poverty uh, neighborhoods in the city who, one, identify the areas that they believe are priorities, two, to once those uh, needs are identified, to find the best solution that exists in the country that has addressed that need or that challenge. And then we work with the community to bring that model to Philadelphia, to their neighborhood, invest in it and scale it and partner it with other stakeholders across the city in the public sector and government, um, and with businesses in the private sector, and with other funders across philanthropy in order to scale that organization and sustain it for the long term. So that's what we do. And we do that in a predictable annual basis. Um, so there's no you know, uh, you know, craziness to our model or our approach. It's very simple. It's a five-step method. We call it our green light method. Uh, and, uh, and we work closely with all of the residents we can find, public officials like, like Mari and others in, in city and state government, um, and a number of funders who sit on our advisory council. And, um, and our, our approach is very simple. We're rooted in the communities we care, we, we care deeply about. Those communities are vulnerable populations experiencing poverty in Philadelphia. And our structure is to work closely with them to find the best solutions in the world that they deserve that meet the needs they have in their community. You're also known in the region as a different kind of founder. How are you able to leverage your role as the head of Greenlight Philadelphia to do things differently, to solve some of those problems? Yeah, it's two, two ways. One is just before any of our organizations come here, this organization sits at the nexus of government, business, and philanthropy. And so the ability for me uh, is to be able to translate challenges, needs, and opportunities across all of those sectors um, and be a place where at the nexus of it, Everyone comes to Greenlight and says, here's the problem. Here's what we think a solution is. And so, you know, one of the great things about this role and about this organization is I'm able to bring different folks together at a table that rarely ever sit together or rarely ever have conversation with, with each other around how to accelerate economic mobility and reduce poverty in Philadelphia. So that's, that's the first thing is that I, I just, it's a very unique nexus that I sit in. I think the second thing is that I am able to be an advocate on behalf of the nonprofit sector, and particularly the nonprofits that, uh, that, that we invest in. I do that in a few ways. You know, I spend a lot of time in City Hall uh, working and identifying local revenue streams that might be available to our, our organizations, and I provide that, that, that local intelligence to our portfolio. Um, I'm able to connect a member of City Council or a state representative to an organization that's operating in their community. And not just an organization, but a family that is in the program that is talking about how important it is to have programs like this in their communities. And so part of the role that I get to have is to advocate on behalf of really effective programs, really effective leaders in the city that are doing important work on behalf of families and, and, and communities. The last thing I would say is one of the best things is I get to support from the ground up the launch of a new model in the city every single year. And so, you know, kind of as a different kind of founder, you know, I sit down once a decision is made to make an investment in a model, 
I sit down with the leader and say, here's the money. What's our plan to move forward? And we build it together. I take a seat on the board. I'm helping them find good talent, hire locally. Sometimes it takes knocking on doors to find and recruit um, you know, new individuals to join the program. But whatever it takes, Greenlight is really side by side with the organizations that we support. That is a um, that is different. That is very different from traditional philanthropy. That's not an, an indictment on philanthropy. It's just a need. Venture philanthropy, similar to venture capital, requires deep engagement and collaboration in order to achieve outcomes. And so we find it to be both incredibly unique and incredibly gratifying to be able to work very, very closely with residents, with policymakers and decision makers to solve some of the big challenges that the city faces every year. Yeah. And and speaking of those challenges, each city is unique. And I mean, as an urban planner, I know that not every solution is a blanket solution. Some things are just teachable moments for other places to look at and learn from. But with that said, how does Greenlight Fund identify the distinct needs of various cities and the communities that they work in? Yeah. In Philadelphia, we spend um, the first three months of the year having conversations with individuals experiencing poverty, right? So in order to identify the distinct needs, we have to say, whose needs are we solving for? And we're very clear that the needs that we're solving for are for individuals that are experiencing poverty. There are about 400,000 individuals um, who meet that definition of the federal poverty level. You know, we have about 130,000 individuals who are in deep poverty, which is households that make $12,000 a year or less. And so the needs um, of those communities are what we care most about, and we shape our investment thesis around those needs, not the needs of what we think, uh, not the needs of what we've heard from you know, other organizations, but, but, but we root it in that. So that's how we identify it. And I think you know, in every city, that is how we do it. We, our, our value, organizational value, as I mentioned, falls on us to be what we call rooted in our communities. And so the unique environments of each of the cities we operate in are what we're attuned to most. I feel very, very strongly about the fact that qualitative data and collaborative efforts need to be taken very seriously when working with people that are in deep poverty. And, and it takes so much to do capacity building, so much more than what what somebody who hasn't experienced that would think to actually get someone out of that situation. And people need to know how difficult it is, but also need to know that where people are missing out on opportunities when they're not looking towards people who are underserved, because often the underserved are more able to create really interesting, innovative ways to get out of different struggles. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. That's why core, core to our work at Greenlight is we're, we are trying to use this model that we have to shift decision-making and agency to individuals who are experiencing poverty but know best what they need to be successful. It's not on us to be prescriptive. It's, it's, it's on us to be supportive and to facilitate a process in which individuals and groups are deciding what's in their best interest and us supporting those aspirations. And so that type of mindset shift, I think, is what sets Greenlight apart, um, both in Philadelphia, but also generally across the country. You know, there, there, is no, there is no model in Philadelphia that exists on an annual basis to identify the needs of this population and solve that challenge until Greenlight came to Philadelphia in 2013. So our hope is um, just to continue to do this work once a year, every year, 
and begin to not just fill potholes, because that's one thing. We don't want to fill gaps. We want to accelerate success. And we want to work with communities and work with models that are focused on accelerating success and work with others to identify gaps and fill those gaps elsewhere. And how does Greenlight approach social innovation at the local level? Yeah, so, you know, uh, Josh Koppelman, who's been a longtime supporter and, and investor in Greenlight, has always said his, his vision of Greenlight, which I share, is that Greenlight brings organizations to Philadelphia that help the nonprofit sector at large raise, raise its bar uh, with a focus, a, a real focus on data-driven decision-making, performance management and evaluation, and really understanding not just the cost of delivering a program, but what does it take to improve a program? And how are you learning that? And how are you implementing that? Really do believe that the organizations we bring to Philadelphia, because they exist in such partnership and alignment with public systems, a good example is the Center for Employment Opportunities, we call CEO. Uh, We work in partnership with the State Department of Corrections. Every person that comes home to Philadelphia from state prison has the opportunity to to train with CEO uh, if they come home to Philadelphia. And once they train with CEO, within a week or so, generally, they have access to a transitional job that pays them anywhere between $10 and $12 an hour. This is the type of thing that should exist regardless, right? It shouldn't take philanthropy to, to step in. But in this case, philanthropy was able to seed an idea that, has, that, that now the system, the correction system said, this is the right way to approach our work is to connect those who are formerly incarcerated immediately with training and a temporary job. And by making that philosophy clear and embedded into, uh, into a public correction system, we can improve outcomes. Uh, Single Stop is an organization that screens individuals for federal, state, and local benefits for which they're eligible. And you know, there was no model or mechanism in the community college system to screen students for the things that they need, right? Maybe some are eligible for WIC. Maybe some of them are eligible for Obamacare and they haven't signed up yet, whatever it might be. So we invested to bring that system to the Community College of Philadelphia. Over five years later, they've drawn down $22 million in cash and non-cash benefits for over 15,000 students. And as a result of that, the Community College of Philadelphia absorbed and adopted the single-stop model into itself. So it does it every, every single day. There's no need for Greenlight to be involved. They, they, they found it valuable. Why? Because it meant individuals would be able to stay, right? They'd be able to stay in school. They'd be able, persistence went up, GPAs went up, and of course, graduation rates went up. And so it's a win for everyone involved. And so those are the types of things we like to engage in, like to engage in the types of social innovation that shifts systems to a much higher bar of performance and outcomes. And, and we certainly believe we don't bring, we don't just bring in a model from outside of the city to Philadelphia. We're trying to bring a model in partnership with Philadelphia institutions. Year up with Pierce College, single stop with, C- with CCP, CEO with the Philadelphia Parks and, Rec- uh, Parks and Recreation. Those are the types of things that we facilitate. And so again, back to the original point, we just really see this as accelerating social innovation on the local scale, raising the bar, not just for individual organizations, but the nonprofit sector and the public systems that we all really rely on to protect our, our most vulnerable populations. Yeah, and even just what you said about the single stop with the community college, that's such a big deal because I used to work with kids in, uh, I used to work at a summer camp for my city (laughs) every summer. And so many of the kids, when I would talk to them about going to college, had no idea that there were resources for them to go. 
And the thing is, I, I'm fortunate enough that my parents both went back to school in their 30s. And my parents are avid readers. But I was fortunate enough that my parents were able to go out and dig up that information for themselves. And therefore, when I got to college, I knew what financial aid was. I knew if I could apply for different benefits. I knew exactly how to get there and get that done because my parents couldn't afford to put me through. And I think that that's so important to to look out for people because not everybody knows where to look for the answers. And it's those simple that, things. It's, it's one of the greatest barriers to reducing poverty is well, there, there are a plethora of programs designed and geared towards all the issues that you mentioned, but people aren't made aware of them. Now, you know, who's the burden on to make sure that they get it, right? I'm a deep believer that if you design a program that you're relying on people who lack trust in a system, who have been underinvested in and discriminated against, if you want a system to tell them to say, hey, I, I want to sign in, that's not the best way to design a system. The best way to design a system would be to go to where they are, to knock on their door, to find out where they congregate, and to build a relationship with them based on what their needs are and, and, and what solutions are available based on what we have. There's no reason for the earned income tax credit to only be utilized by less than 70% of those who are eligible for it, leaving millions and millions on the table. Do you blame families for not knowing, or do you blame the system for not being well-designed? to increase utilization of, of credit. So at the end of the day, a lot of the things that we're working on, you mentioned single stop, it's, it's really about maximizing the utilization of all of the public assistance tools and all the other tools that should be available to everyone and that everyone who's eligible for should get. It's a major challenge. To poverty. Yeah, it's funny because what you said about meeting people where they are, and it's just frustrating because it's nice that people care enough to want to solve a problem. But if you're not the one that's dealing with that, that can be, you're, you're causing, you're potentially causing many more problems by trying to just swoop in and do something without the information. So that's, that's always been a big thing to me. I don't understand why people don't get it, but it's so important to knock on people's doors and to go into these communities and work directly with people. But folks get it in every other context, right? We do so much consumer marketing and polling, and we want to understand like what what consumers think, where they buy. But we never once on the social sector, the nonprofit side, we don't apply that same rigor. We don't apply that same sense of understanding the needs of the consumer in order to best target and partner with the consumer. And so if you were to take that frame into the social sector, it might be useful. But let's take that away. If, if, if you want to bring a program to a community to serve 200 people, number one, do you know that that community wants this? And if, because if they don't want it and it doesn't work, who do you blame then? We brought it, we, we brought this, this great program to North Philadelphia, but nobody, nobody wanted it. So we're not funding it anymore. That's not the type of partnership that we need. What we need is to go into those communities, listen deeply. Listen first and listen second, and then synthesize what we've heard. Does it make sense to us? Based on the assets and the tools that we have, once this is synthesized, is there a path forward? And if so, go back to that community and say, this is what we heard from you. And this is the direction we'd like to move in with you together and co-create and, and walk down that path together. Greenlight believes that's the only way we can really do this work. It's how we do this work in, in nine cities across the country. Um, it's just working deeply with our stakeholders and with our, 
our sectors to identify needs, find the best in the country, and bring those and scale those needs in the city. And we think if we do that over a, over a period, longer period of time, we can begin to make systemic shifts to how public sector, the private sector, and how philanthropy engage, not just with community, but how we design and support uh, philanthropic initiatives to reduce poverty over the long haul. And you actually, you mentioned Josh a while back in there, Josh Kobelman. You know, a lot of people know him for some of the really cool public things that he's investing in, but he really is someone who, he's such a nice guy. I, I, I know him from my work with Backstage Capital, uh, their accelerator here in Philly. And Josh is just, I mean, he really does care. And what I appreciate about him is that he's one of the investors that actually will allow you to do your work, put in the investment and trust the people that are behind it to do the work. I'd love to get him on here. One of the, I gotta get I gotta get him to to come talk to me about the work he's doing because I had no idea that he was invested in in Green Life Fund, and I think that people would be surprised that he's invested in some really meaningful projects. He was one of our earliest investors. Uh, he he was our first chair, and the idea of I, I think part of what Josh did for us as an organization. He really focused us in on the need to look for organizations that had diversified revenue streams. Because even then, in 2012, 2013, he knew that Philadelphia's philanthropic ecosystem isn't as, you know, kind of, uh, if, if you looked at the top 50 cities in the country in terms of population, and you look at the top 50 cities in terms of community foundation assets, we're number six in the country in terms of population, but we're probably number 40 when it comes to community foundation assets, philanthropic assets, it's a good indicator. And so what he knew was Greenlight couldn't bring any, import anything to the city of Philadelphia. And then after four years, five years, pawn it off to Pew or pawn it off to William Penn and say, oh, Lenfest will continue funding it. That wasn't sustainable. And so, you know, what he really did, his contribution was, you know, we, we wanna raise the bar in terms of the level of performance in the nonprofit sector. We also need to figure out alternative revenue models that can scale in the city that are not 100% reliant on philanthropy. And so we have a bunch of organizations like Compass Working Capital, which does financial coaching for uh, families in public housing. It allows them to capture any rental payment increases and diverts it into their savings account. So anytime their rent goes up, the, the difference that, go, that uh, goes into their savings account rather than goes to PHA and rent. And so the reason I bring this organization up is because they have a contractual relationship Philadelphia Housing Authority, where philanthropy's role is just to accelerate the scale and the work. But they're working to spread and scale innovation inside the public housing system. So 60% of their funds, right, are coming from contracts. This is not typical, you know, nonprofit stuff, right? But this is the type of work that we care deeply about. And Josh is, is the one, I think, who really set us down that path. The five organizations in our portfolio, four of them, are deeply, deeply diversified uh, to the point where you know twenty to thirty percent of their revenues are philanthropy, and the remainder are contracts and, and business development and sales and, and doing what they have to do. So I, I think that's something that Josh really gave us, and what it did was focus us on how likely is it that this organization can grow in the city of Philadelphia through recruitment, through partners, and by good contract. And that's a fundamentally different way of doing diligence on a, on a nonprofit. It's a different way of working with leaders 
Um, and that's one of the reasons Greenlight really is a different kind of funder. We're a different kind of supporter. And I put that at the feet of Josh a great deal for creating that origin story for us at the outset. And it's it's interesting because in in the the venture capital side for startups, I mean, there's so many people complaining about how Philly doesn't have enough funding. And on the nonprofit side, same thing. There's not enough funding. And I think that one gets the other. I think that it's like a, as long as there are people who are investing in the city, then there's going to be some kind of economic upside to help businesses thrive here in the long run. So if you're getting, if you can get funding from both sides to be present, it'll keep things going. Because even the project, the, the projects that I'm doing right now with startup accelerators, we're doing it with grant funding. So I've completely seen both sides having worked with Backstage Capital on their venture capital side, working with entrepreneurs, and then on the side of working with the Science Center and us applying for grants and really trying to make sure that we're not putting people in the people into the traditional system of, <laughs> of venture capital when they, they don't, you know, some people don't need it. That's uh, right. So it's, it's really interesting to think about that. I think one begets the other. Once you have that's funding right. on one side, the funding on the other will come. And it, it's sad that that's, that's just how it is, but we need more people to put their trust and faith into the city of Philadelphia and invest in it so that we can get more investors. We're not going to get more investors without investors. Uh, that's it. No, you're absolutely <laughs> right. I, I totally agree. I 100% agree with you. And what, what does Greenlight look for in the organizations that it invests in? Yeah, I mean, the, the first thing we're looking for is, um, is a local fit. And so what we mean by that is the model, the organization, given the unique ecosystem in Philadelphia, will this model duplicate efforts? Will it supplant efforts? We need to know that. And so that's the number one thing, right? First and foremost, if we're going to import something, we have to make sure that it's a good fit here. The second thing we look for in organizations is evidence of impact. And so we want to know, it doesn't have to be a randomized control trial. It doesn't. But if it's a quasi-experimental design, whatever it is, what we want to know is, is this model, when it's implemented with fidelity, what's the evidence that it works? And can you show me evidence that it works in multiple geographies? multiple situations so that I have some confidence that if it's replicated in Philadelphia, it'll be successful and it'll scale. The final thing we look for is, you know, the likelihood of long-term sustainability. We're particularly interested in understanding if we bring something to Philadelphia, will it stay in Philadelphia? And so a lot of our work is around, you know, creating a capital stack, aligning other investors, co-investors, and syndicating our investment that we can bring private sector funders, public sector funders to the table. Across our portfolio of five organizations, we've directly invested $4.2 million, but we've leveraged almost $14 million in public and private funding and follow-on capital. And so part of that is kind of creating a table and a space where we're aligning sectors around need rooted in the voices and the lives of those experiencing poverty. And we're presenting a best-in-class solution that's worked in other cities across the country with other public sector officials or, or, or private sector companies that are national in scope. And we feel confident that we bring it to Philadelphia, it'll scale. And uh, so far in our five organizations in our portfolio, all of them have successfully sustained themselves. Most recently, Europe and Single Stop, it's been six years since we brought them to Philadelphia. So uh, seven years, actually. 
So, you know, we feel confident that what we bring to Philadelphia can stay in Philadelphia. Those are the three things that we look for in order for them to really meet our initial framework uh, in order to come to Philadelphia in the first place. So how do you analyze the effectiveness and the potential for local impact? Yeah, so the potential for local impact is really around what indicator, what measure are they seeking to improve? So as part of our process, when we identify a major need in a city, what we need to look at is we align that need with the core performance measure that the organization has said, this is what success looks like for us. An example, we looked at a great organization uh, that was committed to improving student attendance, reducing chronic absenteeism in schools. And so what we learned was that what happened to be a measure that was in now state law, right? Uh, the, the Department of Education said to school districts all over the state, you're going to have to better measure and track attendance across elementary, middle, and high schools. So it became a statutory pressure in order for them to get smarter and better at tracking and mitigating chronic absenteeism. And so once we saw that, we, we looked at organizations that were attendance improvement organizations and looked at their logic model and their theory of change to see if in fact, a long-term outcome was the improvement of attendance of attendance rates or the reduction of chronic absenteeism. Once we're able to align those two things, we're good to go. What we want to know, back to the point you asked earlier, is how do you know, how, you know what's your criteria for, for investment? We just want to know and have confidence that their attendance improvement achievement in other cities is good enough. And sometimes it's not. We look at a lot of organizations that do really great work in the cities they're in, but it's not meaningful enough for us in Philadelphia to make a significant investment. And, you know, and these are decisions that you know, investors of all, of, of all stripes have to make every day. There's a lot of no's that we get. Um, but at the end of the day, what we're really looking for is an organization that has the track record. We're, we're investing in, in mezzanine level organizations between 3 million and 50 million in revenue. And so these are organizations generally that have become more sophisticated about how to report, what success looks like, and how to scale. And that's really the ones that we're working with most days. And I mean, especially because Philly has the distinction of being the largest poorest city in the U.S., a problem that you've referred to before as the Gordian knot. Yeah. How, how does Greenlight enable communities to build power and turn deep poverty into prosperity? Um, so the, the, the Gordian knot that I refer to is really around is really around income as a fundamental biological necessity that you cannot live and operate in this world the capitalist society without the ability to generate income. And now it's not even the ability to generate income, it's the ability to generate income at a particular level. And there's a gap between, between those things often. And so until you can boost people's ability to not just generate income, but to generate a family sustaining or individual sustaining income, um, there's not much you can do to loosen that knot, right? Unless you look at how you fund education, which is primarily through property taxes, which is based on, when you go back to it, you look at how intentional redlining purposely destroyed the property values of certain areas of town where disproportionately people of color live, then you end up with school districts in those areas that have lower funding. And so they don't get AP courses, they don't get honors courses, they don't get foreign language courses, right? And so the ability, the, the, the fact that so many of these pieces are systemic, right? They're not programmatic. They're not something you can just 
you know, right out of a law. They're deeply ingrained in, in psyche, in mindsets, and in systems. You know, what Greenlight is really looking to do then is to identify points in systems, public housing systems, public workforce systems, corrections, the community college system. We're trying to find the right leverage points and access points to drop a seed of innovation and then scale it rapidly so that we can get innovation and proven models to as many people within that distribution system as possible. There are 20,000 individuals who are eligible for the family self-sufficiency program that we scaled in Philadelphia in partnership with the Philadelphia Housing Authority. Our hope is to get to 10% of the eligible population with that program. Is it possible that the city of Philadelphia, that Philadelphia Housing Authority, the federal government could scale that to all 20,000? Maybe, but our goal is to get that program to reach as many of the eligible population as possible. That's how we approach this idea of turning deep poverty into prosperity, is going where individuals who are experiencing poverty are. And, and in terms of a distribution network, whether it's the public education system or elsewhere, introduce a best-in-class model that is proven, proven to work so that we can expose as many people to that as possible. So that's our hope. Uh, when we talk about kind of you know, the, the Gordian knot, Greenlight doesn't engage in politics. We don't engage in advocacy per se, but we are deeply interested in embedding innovation in systems that have long legacies of, of structural racism and gender discrimination. And so going forward, we will be much more intentional and explicit about how our investments move that forward or address those issues. But we don't shy away from the fact that these things exist and that these, these things are the cause and what perpetuates poverty in our city in particular. And, and you've said that we need to put the power where it belongs. What, what do you mean by this and how is that achieved? Yeah, so philanthropy, people say philanthropy has a privilege problem, right? That you have generally privileged individuals who have the ability to deploy capital where they feel it's, you know, it, it, it deserves to be. Greenlight has a much more participatory approach to grant making, which is that we actually engage individuals experiencing poverty, not just in where money should go, but framing what the issues are in the first place, right? That's power. That's, that's choice-making and decision-making and agency-building and power-sharing in communities that have largely been overlooked. And that's just not how philanthropy operates. Um, but we believe that beyond COVID, we believe this is how philanthropy will need to operate in the future in order to get better grant-making outcomes, in order for, the, for whatever it is that we fund and support to have the power and promise that it, that it deserves. We're going to need to co-create solutions and co-design initiatives with those that are experiencing poverty, period. And so we believe that Greenlight's model is an effective way to do that, certainly a number of other ways too, but we leave that we believe it's incredibly effective and will be central to our success going forward. So what makes your model special in your mind? What makes our model special is that we're issue agnostic. We don't we, we don't come in with a sense of what of what we should do. We're trying to facilitate what individuals experiencing poverty in communities need and want. And so by being a vehicle rather than a voice, that makes us fundamentally different from any other grant maker in, in the city. There are a couple others that I think are, are similar in this regard. though. Uh, one is Bread and Roses Fund. Uh, Bread and Roses is very much focused on funding and supporting organizing organizations or that, that, that are organizing to build power in communities. That's not where, where we are. That's not what we fund. But we do share a philosophy 
that co-creation and co-design of grant making priorities and initiatives is central. And so I, I, I really do think if you look at other venture philanthropy organizations across the country, this differentiates us, differentiates us absolutely. But even if you look in the city of Philadelphia, there's no other organization like us that does what we do. I think it's one of the reasons why um, over the last seven years, we found some success. I think the opportunity now is to talk uh, prospectively about the type of Philadelphia we all want to see, the type of systems that we all want to participate in and enjoy, and Greenlight's role in helping us get there. Yeah, and I do think that both co-collaboration and diversity kind of go hand in hand. And how does the diversity of your board lead to innovation and insight? Do they learn from each other? Absolutely. Um, you know, 45% of our of our board are, are people of color, 40% women. You know, my, my team is is 100% black, non-Hispanic. It, it's incredibly important to us. You know, there's 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 racial diversity. There's there's all types of diversity. The diversity for our advisory council and our board that's most important really is diversity of experience. And so we have. When I joined, we had a lot of a lot of women in philanthropy and men from business. And so when I joined, I made an intentional effort to have women from business and men from philanthropy. And it changed the conversation dramatically because when you have someone, you know, like a, you know, a, gosh, you, know, you start with a Josh Koppelman, right? There, there's a certain sense of like, wow, we got some really great business folks here. You know, but also you have folks who are CEOs and CFOs of family-owned businesses who are women who are fantastic and bring a fundamentally different approach and thought structure to our discussions. And it was needed. So number one, what, what we think of is we have to find diverse pockets of really successful individuals who, have, who know what to do, how to build businesses, how to grow, and how to pivot. And we have that. It's so important for us to have that type of board. If we don't, I think we'd struggle. Yeah, I think especially right now dealing with the pandemic, having co-collaboration at the forefront of what you do and a diverse team really can help you figure out, I mean, a lot of solutions to some of the things that people are dealing with every day. How has COVID-19 impacted the work that you're doing? Uh, I mean, we've certainly shifted, you know, to, to, to remote, right? We've, we've closed our office, you know, all the basic things. We, we, we've stopped travel. I think programmatically and operationally, um, what it's done is a lot of our work has been in person, you know, spending a lot of time at community meetings, spending a lot of time in feedback forums and focus groups, trying to understand what the needs are. That's generally what we'd be doing during this time. It's really hard to replace that in-person connection, right? This is about building trust and, and it's hard to build trust over Zoom. But that said, you know, we're going we're gonna to do our best to continue those conversations. But it, it, it has been, I would say, initially a struggle to maintain kind of that in-person relationship. That's the first thing. I think the second thing is that priorities have shifted and capacities have shifted. You know, we feel confident again, you know, we raise our funds in advance. We feel confident in where we are currently, but the city of Philadelphia, the state government, not so sure, right? And so when we rely, as I mentioned to you earlier, on public leverage, the capacity of those governments are are significantly constrained now because of revenue losses. And, and, and on the other side, it's not just governments, it's also philanthropy and businesses. Businesses are going to look anew at their corporate social responsibility and what their capacities are to engage in community. And the same with philanthropy. Is the market enough to impact endowment performance and as a result, uh, spend down rates over the next two years? So, you know, there's pressure, on downward pressure on our usual stakeholders who partner with us to, to make investments. So, you know, I, I imagine that there may be some concerns. The last thing I'll say there, it's not a, it's not a negative 
issue around COVID, but many of our partners have or will be shifting priorities. And so the things that we may have counted on them to invest in may pivot now because they're saying, we're not going to do this anymore because of COVID. It's opened our eyes to other things. So we see all of these things, but we feel confident that as long as we continue to focus on what's important, which is framing the needs, engaging with individuals experiencing poverty, and authentically synthesizing what those needs are, we think that is an incredibly powerful deliverable for the city of Philadelphia. And we also think it's an incredible animating tool to bring people and rally people and institutions around a solution uh, that's actionable. And to do that once a year, every year is something that we feel just really good about. It's just difficult to think about. It's, it's honestly, it's difficult for me to process how much is happening right now, both positive and negative, but just the the sheer shock of being stuck in your house <laughs> for for weeks upon weeks and trying to do the work that we do is very difficult to connect with certain communities. It's already hard enough to get people to walk through the doors of a community meeting on a regular basis. Now you're adding in technology into the mix. And, you know, in the other, the other conversation we had, we talked a little bit about how some of the information going out to help people in, in Spanish wasn't going out until a day later. And then things are changing within within that 24 hour period. So there's a lot of people out here who are not getting served the information that they need. And even before all of this, the social, educational, economic inequalities, they were all pretty prevalent and, and already frustrating and damaging to the city and, and the communities that people like us try so hard to uplift and build capacity within. And like you said, a lot of priorities have shifted. So funding that people were waiting for, some of it's gone. And I know that from some of the work that I'm doing too, it's, it's just very difficult. But what, what kind of priority shifts has the, the Greenlight Fund had? You know, what are, what are some of the things that you've seen out here as being big issues and things that you're leaning into? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I honestly, you know, COVID highlighted some new challenges that we hadn't thought about in the city. Issues around telemedicine and telehealth in particular, we haven't fully thought through. And of course, you know, I, I can't, I can't not mention the challenges of remote and distance learning for K-12. The one I'm most worried about right now is the childcare sector. It's, it's going to be tough to figure out a lot of that, but those areas were like, wow, COVID has really helped us figure out like, that these are going to be challenges. But then COVID also exacerbated, to your point, existing challenges. And for me, those have always been about income inequality and the, and the wealth gap. It's always been about disproportionately people of color working in occupations susceptible to automation. These are all issues that Greenlight has constantly been thinking about. Three years ago, four years ago, we looked at the issue of the digital divide before this was an issue. And so a lot of these areas are you know, reminding Greenlight that we're doing the right thing because the issues that, that are coming up now have been exacerbated by the crisis, but we were looking at three, four years ago and looking for solutions. So, you know, nothing has caused us to pivot or change. What it has given us is some confidence that we're on the right path because the issues that we continue to hear from residents are the issues that they're facing, you know, right now, particularly in a pandemic. The one other thing I'd add here, the city of Philadelphia, um, the state of Pennsylvania, in terms of its ability to engage families and households that are experiencing poverty, there are so many of them 
There are so many households in Philadelphia that are experiencing poverty. There's just going to be a need for in-person knocking on doors, community resident ambassadors. There's going to, there's no substitute for in-person engagement at this point. And so, you know, what I thought would go away was the idea of case management based solutions. There's actually going to be a significant need for community health workers, for resident ambassadors to help others engage in resident engagement, for individuals to help others sign up for uh, services that they're eligible for, for delivery of nutritious food for individuals who are elderly or immobile or, or who lack transportation. I mean, these are the types of things that we're going to be thinking about going forward. And that was a surprise. Our, our initial thought was everyone is going to want to move virtual. There's just no substitute for in-person communication and engagement. And we'll look for best-in-class opportunities moving forward around that as well. You know, there is no replacement for communicating with people face-to-face. That's right. And, and it makes a lot of things difficult. And there's going to have to be a lot of change. Some of it's going to be good. Some of it's going to be bad. But we just have to wait and see. And you're you're very deeply embedded in the philanthropy world and, and much esteemed there. Uh, you're also on a number of boards. Uh, you teach. You're involved in state, federal, and, and foreign government relations. How do you blend these different worlds, and why are they important to the mission that drives your work? I, I believe deeply there are only three ways to achieve social change. One is you can change perceptions. And that's usually around storytelling and narrative shifts and all of that. That's incredibly long-term. It's expensive. It's hard to do. The second is, is, is policy. And you can achieve social change through policy changes. And that's legislative. It could be a whole bunch of different things. But that's generally how you see that through, through laws. And then the third is practice. And you can achieve social change by changing the practices of governments, nonprofits, business leaders, and, and so on. I see all those three as integrated, and I see the opportunity from Greenlight to make investments in models that change practices locally, that lead to policy shifts because decision makers are watching and learning the alternative ways of being. And that meanwhile, that the policy and practices are shifting, there's an intentionality around telling the stories of those who are experiencing change. And telling the story from a positive perspective that roots and begins with someone's basic humanity. And so you begin to see this problem not as a problem of an issue, but something that someone like you or someone you know or someone who looks like someone you know is experiencing on a daily basis. And so you begin to build empathy or familiarity with the challenge. And that makes you want to do something about it to make it a little bit easier. If you're able to integrate all of those three things together, you can accelerate social change much faster. And so me sitting on boards gives me, and different boards, gives me a sense of the ecosystem in the region. It helps me understand how decisions are made, how capital flows, where the influence is. So that's one thing. The other piece is understanding the politics nature of it is also around understanding levers of impact, like access points. Uh, because what, what policy and, and what politics allows you to do is to see where the dollars are. Politics, when dollars are appropriated, it's a statement of priorities. And so, you know, knowing that and being aware of that is incredibly important for someone in philanthropy whose job it is to deploy capital, right? And so understanding where funding flows are going is just incredibly important for people in philanthropy to understand, you know, not necessarily to be political, 
but to understand politics. And so I've always found that that's, that's incredibly important. Um, and then on the, on, that's the policy side and the, and, and the perception side on the practice side, that's our standard grant making. And I learned so much from our grantees, but specifically from the families, from the children, from the young people, from the, from the moms and the dads, I'm learning more about perception, policy, and practice from them than I am from anything else. And if we're able to elevate their voices and their experiences, I think we can shift the perception of people in poverty uh, much faster. And so that's kind of my philosophy around why it's important to thread all of those things together, because you would suboptimize if you only did one or the other. It's important to do all three. What do you think we need to see from leadership to steer us through this and beyond this? I think, you know, nationally, locally, you know, regardless, everywhere, I think the three things, it's a focus on radical candor, focus on trust building, and an animating force around uniting us towards a common goal. And in and, and moments of crisis, what we ask of leaders is to rally us towards something meaningful and something aspirational. Because what crises, what crises do, it, it, it feeds on fear. Even before, you know, FDR's great line, crises cause people to be incredibly afraid about their mortality and, and their future. And so what leaders have to do is make people feel confident that tomorrow is going to be a bit better. And so, you know, what I think from the green light perspective, what, what we hope is we can say, you know, not tomorrow, but next year, we're, we're going to be doing the same thing we, do, we did this year and we did last year and creating some sense of predictability, something that, that you can count on something being there, gives people a little bit of hope and, and a little bit of optimism. And so, you know, my hope is, and what I shared with our grantees and our, our, our investors and, and our stakeholders is, you know, one thing we can tell you is that green light's not going away and we're not changing. We're doubling down and we're recommitting to what it is that we do, um, which is to work closely with, with, with residents to identify their needs and invest and scale innovation in their neighborhoods in ways that they've designed and created and own. Uh, and if we continue to do that year in, year out, we can make a difference. So that's, that, that's what keeps me excited about the opportunity for Greenlight's leadership going forward, and at least what we, we can embody and share in the city. Thanks for listening, and a very special thanks to Omar for taking the time to catch up. If you're interested in learning more about the Greenlight Fund, head over to their website, greenlightfund.org. As always, if you have any extra thoughts on this conversation, or would like to recommend an interview you'd like to hear, be sure to send us a message on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can also email us at info at parallaxcollab.com. Until next time. <laughs>